All right. We're here to be heroes, right? That was the whole theme. The theme's been hero. How do we do hero? I look up hero in the Bible. Hero's not in the Bible. So I thought, well, maybe what I need to find out is what is the, what's the essence of a hero? And so um, I figured, well, maybe a hero is a, a strong man. And so I look up strong man in the Bible, but all the Bible tells us, sorry, that's me. All the Bible tells us about a strong man is you got to tie him up before you steal his stuff. So I figure that's not, that's probably not what we're looking at. So I grew up with comic books. I grew up with cartoons. And, and so my thought was, well, maybe, you know, it's, it's the idea of you got, you've got special abilities, you've got mutant abilities, but I figure that, that just makes you a sideshow freak. You know, like the guys that hang 50 pounds from their nipples or shove nails up their nose or something. I'm thinking that's, that's probably not what we're talking about. What's a hero? I mean, what is the essence of a hero? If we boil it down, what's a hero? It's not all the things we see in the comic books. I think when we get down to exactly what a hero is, a hero is something that's, that's noble. It's someone who sacrifices his own personal interests for someone else. Oftentimes for the purposes of saving that other person's life. Well, that's a savior. And I can find that in my Bible. You see, really, if you think about the essence of what a hero is, a hero is a savior. He's someone who goes and he saves. Sorry. It's the cape. I don't know what to do. Fly. Yeah, there we go. That's all I got to do. So, if Jesus is the ultimate superhero, which he is, because he's the ultimate savior, he's, he's, the, he's the uber hero, he's the omni hero, he's untouchable, I see that in the Bible, because it says the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and how did he do it? It says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and gave up all for the purposes of saving others. He is the hero. And we have a longing to be a hero, don't we? We all want to be a hero. I mean, you guys laughed at my cape, but I could hear the jealousy in your laugh, okay? I could hear it. If we, if we were selling these, you, they'd all sell out. You wouldn't show them to your wives, but you know, or maybe you would, I don't know. But... Um, but is that wrong? I mean, is it wrong to, to want to be a hero? Is it wrong? I mean, is that blasphemous I, that I want to be a hero like Jesus is a hero? I don't think so. In fact, I want, I want to say that it's not only is it not wrong, it's biblical that we should want to be a hero because it says that we're created in the image of God. We bear the image of God in us and we want to be like our Savior. I would say that that has been the call. If you think about it, how did Jesus call his followers? He didn't say, Peter, come, you'll be, my, uh, you'll be my PR man. And, uh, Andrew, uh, you can be a minstrel. You write songs about me. John, you, you do accounting. He didn't do that. Jesus came up to all of them, and it was the same thing to every single one of them. Okay, what am I going to do here? Is it the clip? No, it's not that, I, I don't think, is it? Here. I know what I can do. He came up to them and he gave them the exact same call, all of them. He said, follow me, follow me. What did he entice them with? 
Did he say, follow me and I'll double your salary? Follow me, I'll give you a great health plan. Follow me and you get all the babes. That's not what he did. Actually, his call went more like this. He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Your family, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Die and follow me. Well, how in the world, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone follow if those are the conditions? Well, because he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He said, follow me, I'll make you a hero. You'll be a hero. That's always been the heart of God, isn't it? Ever since the fall, anyway. You see, with the fall was introduced sin. With sin, death. And once you've got someone who's dying, they need to be rescued. Ever since the fall, there has been a need of a rescue. There's been a need for a hero. And so it's been God's heart from the very beginning that the lost should be saved. It was for this reason that almost immediately he calls Abram. He says, Abram, I want you to leave where you're at. Follow me. And then he gives him a blessing. He says, and those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all of the earth will be blessed. I will make you a hero. You see, and that gets repeated with Moses. And Deuteronomy, when Moses is giving the charge to Israel, what is his charge? His charge is these commandments, these statutes, these ordinances that I've given to you, follow them. Follow them in the face of all the peoples that they may look at you and say, what an incredible people. What a wise people. Paul, that was weird. I was like, yes, Lord. Um, <laughs> what a wise people. Who, who is like this people who God walks with them? David captured it in a psalm. In, a, in Psalm 67, he says, God be gracious to us, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us that your ways may be known on the earth, that your salvation would be known to all the people. And it says that he has the heart of God. God's, from the very beginning, was I will choose you as a nation and you go and bring fruit. You go and evangelize. Go teach the nations that they need God. That was his heart. That's always been the heart of God. We have an entire book in the Old Testament, Jonah. What's the entire purpose of the book of Jonah? God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh and save them. Be the hero. Go save them. Tell them that I love them. They need to repent. Jonah doesn't. Not because he's afraid. He tells us why he doesn't. He says, look, I knew that if I come that you are merciful and you are forgiving and that you would forgive these people and I don't like these people and I don't want you to save them. And that's why he ran. Well, how serious is God about salvation? Well, he'll have Jonah trapped in a storm, swallowed, and then vomited up. He's like, Jonah, do you hear me now? And Jonah goes. God is serious about saving the lost. That is his heart. Which is why when we get into the time when Christ comes, we have a series of stories that's kind of interesting. In, in Matthew, you kind of have it played out. In Mark, I think the order is played out right. Obviously, with each gospel, you get a different uh, you get a, a different viewpoint, uh, as Pancho was saying. You get a different viewpoint from each gospel. In Mark, we get the order of how things happen. In Matthew, we get a really good telling of the story. But it goes something like this. 
Jesus is coming. It's, it's going to be the time for his betrayal. He's coming into Jerusalem. And as he's walking into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. And he goes to the fig tree to see if he can get some fruit off the fig tree. But there's no fruit on the fig tree, so Jesus curses it. And the disciples take note. Jesus then walks into the temple. He goes into the temple, and he makes a scourge of cords. And this is the angriest we see our Savior. And he drives everyone out of the temple and he says, my house should be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. And he drives them out. And then, as he's returning from the temple, they walk by the fig tree and it's dead. Weird story. Until you understand the heart of God. First of all, it's important that we know where Jesus drove them out of. On the Temple Mount, uh, if you can picture in your mind, there's the mountain, and the temple is built on the very tip of this hill. But Herod wanted a larger courtyard, so Herod built a retaining wall all the way around and created a large, flat space. It's a huge court. It's the court that the Dome of the, uh, the Mosque of the Rock is on right now. All right? It's a very huge platform. That was called the Court of the Gentiles. On one side, you had, you had the Hall of the Sanhedrin. On the other side, you had the Antonia Fortress, where the Roman cohort was uh, that was ruling over Israel. The rest of the court was surrounded by a large portico or a porch, and that was called the Court of the Gentiles. As you came in, there was a smaller area that had a small half wall around it, and there was a warning sign on every door. And that warning said to the Gentiles, you may not pass here. If you pass here, you will die and it will be your fault. It wasn't a seeker-friendly church. As you got into that, that's called, the, um, that's called the court of the Jews. For the Jews, there was a larger structure. That structure was actually nice. It, it created a nice quiet place inside there. That was called the court of the women. That's where you would give your offerings. That's where you would um, bring your sacrifice. There was a wall then that separated you from the court of the men. And the court of the men was the court that was immediately around the temple. That's where the sacrifice was made. Only men could go into there. Then you had the holy place, which only the priest could go in. And then the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go in once a year. You had this series of concentric circles. Jesus did not drive them out of the court of men. He didn't drive them out of the court of the women. There was nothing going on there that he needed to deal with. He didn't drive them out of the court of the Jews. Because you see, that was a holy place and it was kept quiet and it was kept reverent where people could worship God. He drove them out of the court of the Gentiles. You see, if you were a Gentile, you were not a Jew, that's as far as you could go. You couldn't get any closer than that half wall or they'd kill you. This is as close as a Gentile could come to the Most High God. And it's in this porch, this, and there's a porch all the way around it. And what's in the porches? Sheep and pigeons and money changers and a marketplace and bickering and noise. And so Jesus comes in and he's angry. He's like, I told you to save the lost. I created you to be a nation of heroes. And instead of bringing the nations to my house, you've kept them from me. Because he's quoting Isaiah. It says, my house shall be called a house of prayer unto all the nations. And then he quotes Jeremiah, but you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus is angry because instead of saving the lost, Instead of bringing the people and bringing the lost to Jesus and bringing them to the Father, I should say, they're actually, the church is in the way. And so the fig tree is representative of Israel. 
that he put a curse upon it, and when he came back, it had died. Now, in case we miss that, it's kind of symbolic, Jesus comes back into the temple. There he is questioned uh, by the leadership, and they say, what authority are you doing all of this from? And he tells them a story, and the story explains everything. It's called the parable of the landowner. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he rented it out to vine growers and he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vineyard to receive his produce. And the vine growers took the slaves, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to those vine growers? It says they said to him, well, he will bring those wretcheds to a wretched end and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in its proper season. Jesus said to them, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation that will produce the fruit of it. Jesus explained it. He says, it's been my father's heart from the beginning that you go and you rescue the lost. That's the only reason you're still breathing. You're supposed to rescue the lost. My father weeps for the lost. You're supposed to rescue the lost. He is the one who owns the vineyard. He is the one who planted the vines. He is the one who created these people. And he is the one who provided the wall and he provided the protection. He is the one who provided the tower that looks over the vineyard. He is the one who provided the vat because he wants to actually process the fruit. You see, we're not just about making converts. We're about making disciples. And it says, and he gave you everything. And when he came for the fruit, you beat the prophets. You beat his servants. And when he sends his son, you will take his son outside the gate and you will kill him. So he's going to take the kingdom from you and give it to ones who will produce the fruit. And it's that reason that he went up to the fig tree and it withered. There was no fruit on it. It represented Israel. Well, that would be comforting and we can get all upset about, um, man, I feel like an octopus or something. He, um, we could feel pretty good about this, but who's the nation he gave it to? Us. Do we think the rules changed? The rules didn't change. We're supposed to be bearing fruit, aren't we? It's right within the scriptures. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Acts chapter 1, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. God has called us. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then a couple chapters later, he turns around to us and he says, Now you go to, into the world and preach the gospel. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should Remain. Fruit, fruit, fruit like the fig tree, fruit like the vineyard. Yeah, fruit. He's pricked us to go bear fruit. And ultimately, it's Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I do not ask that you take these, us, out of the world. You sent me into the world. 
I send them into the world. It's the same heart. It's the same God from Genesis through Revelation. And his burden is the same, and it's for the lost. He is the ultimate hero, and he's called us to be heroes. And he says, now, go and save the lost. Go save those who are dying. That's the same charge, the same one that he gave to Israel, and he was mad when Israel didn't do it. That's what he's called us to do. Now, my talk was titled, The Power of the Body of Christ. And of course, whenever you think of the body of Christ, you think of Romans 12, you think of 1 Corinthians 12 about the eye and the ear and the nose and how the eye can't tell the nose what to do and the ear can't say I'm not an eye so I don't belong. And, and it's really about the, it's about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and I could have gone that way, except to be honest with you, I don't feel like an eye, right? I, for the most part, I just, I feel like a hemorrhoid. I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like a part of the body that... I feel like, you know, they just cut me off. So um, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, I'm not the man to call. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this from a, a different physiological perspective. Every cell in your body contains the blueprint for your body. There is something resident in every single cell, and it has a purpose, to be one with the body and to do that which the head calls it to do. Jesus is our head. We are the body. What are we called to do? Whatever he does. We're called to do what he's called us to do. And he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was the command. It was follow me. In fact, he even said this, truly, truly, I say to you that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these because I am about to go to the Father. I think our call is really clear. We're supposed to be doing what Jesus did. We're supposed to be following him. We're supposed to be like our hero. So let's get practical. When I go up to somebody, I'm going, man, what are you doing for the kingdom right now? How's it going? What, what, what are you doing? I get this a lot. Well, you know, I work down at the shop. I work down with a bunch of guys. They're rough. And, you know, but I'm a Christian. And so, you know, they, uh, they cuss all the time. I don't cuss. I'm different from them. I don't cuss. And uh, they're all a bunch of, I'm honest. I do all my business honestly. Everybody else is lying. They're cheating. They're stealing but I'm honest. And all the guys after work, they all go out to drink. I don't go out to drink. I go home. I don't drink. Well, that's good. That's sweet. That's nice. That's real good. But you know, I don't think Jesus' ministry was known. I mean, Jesus wasn't known because he didn't cuss. They didn't say, well, who's the Messiah? Well, you know, he's the one that doesn't drink. Jesus wasn't known for a lack of sin. Jesus was known because he preached the truth and because of what he did, his actions. He was, he was forthright. He was, he was an advancing uh, a force. And he's called us the church. And what did he say? He even said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He didn't say the cannons of hell will not prevail against you. He didn't say the tanks of hell will not prevail against you. He said the gates won't prevail. Gate is a defensive structure. We were never called to be defensive. We were called to be an advancing troop, to go and to seek and to save that which is lost because that's what our, our hero does. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be going out. So let's get practical. I'm glad if you don't cuss. You don't drink. You don't do those things. Okay. If you do, stop it. Okay. Next message. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm going to ask you a question right now. 
What are the names of the people that you have got marked for salvation that you're going to evangelize? What are their names right now? Do you have a list of them? What is the list? Can you write down the list of the people that you are discipling? What are their names right now? And if you don't have a list, repent. God has called us to seek and to save that which is lost. He said that we're supposed to live the life of a hero. And we don't do that on accident. You don't accidentally evangelize. You do it on purpose. You have a target. You know who it is that you want to get saved and you're praying for them and you're planning and you're figuring out some way to get to them and to speak to them and to, and to, and to get around them. And then you find those who are in need of discipleship and you disciple them. This is the practicality of what we're supposed to be doing. Look around. What's noticeably missing in this room? Can you tell? Women. Whoa, Simba. Women. Get this guy some saltpeter. No, dude. It's a men's conference. No. What's missing? Young men. There's more young men here than there's been in the past, but come on. Where are the young men? And if you're thinking, well, you know, I, th I thought our youth pastor was going to bring one. I thought our youth pastor, that was his job. No. It doesn't work that way. I'm a youth pastor. We got easily 50, 50 young men in our youth group, and I tried. I did my best. I said, guys, you could all be in the men's conference. You should be in the men's conference. Don't let money keep you away from the men's conference. And a few are here. Praise be unto God. But there could have been 50, 60 of them in here. I know how they would have been in here. If a man would have walked over there and said, Son, how about you and I go to the men's conference? I'll pay. You sit with me. We'll eat together. Maybe later we'll go do something. 90 plus percent, you know it, would come over here in a heartbeat if a man asked him. One on one. I know that because that's how I got saved is there was a man who paid attention to me. I was a crazy lost child. Now, my dad paid attention to me. My grandfather paid attention to me. They weren't, my dad wasn't necessarily Christian at the time, but, but he, he, he loved me. But the truth is, I, he had to love me. He's my dad. I mean, if he doesn't pay attention to me, I cost him too much money. I understood that. <laughs> but this guy didn't have to pay attention to me. And he did. And that made all the difference. Who are you discipling? Let's face it, we're men. The fields are white for harvest. There are hundreds, there are thousands of young men right now that are in desperate need of salvation and discipleship. And, and they're waiting for a man to show up. Now you might be thinking, you don't know how to disciple them. I mean, how would I disciple them? I, I wouldn't know what to tell them. Just tell them the truth. What does a young man need to hear? He needs to hear, you're supposed to be a hero. You're supposed to be a man of God. That's the truth. That's what you tell him. Dude, you're supposed to be a godly man. And then you tell him what that is. A godly man. He reads this book because it's the very words of God. A godly man prays and calls down the power of God. A godly man goes to church. A godly man loves high explosives. A godly man, he prays. 
A godly man protects women. A godly man speaks truth and not lies. A godly man pees off the highest thing he can get on top of. You just tell him the truth. They don't know. They don't know. That's why they're out there killing themselves, doing stupid things. Because nobody told them how great it is to be a man of God. What a privileged position it is to be a hero. What it is to be part of the army of God, those who have been selected to save the planet. Nobody's told them that. I know you don't feel like you can do it. I don't feel like I can do it. After Robert, I don't feel like I should be up here. I'm convicted. But can I be really, really honest with you? I have no clue what I'm doing. I never have. But that's not supposed to stop us because we know who we belong to. Let me tell you a story. This is the way it works. When I was in second grade, on Tuesdays, boys would wear their blue uniforms that were in the Cub Scouts because Tuesday was Cubs uniform day. And Cub Scouts would be wearing those blue uniforms. And I thought those blue uniforms were cool. And so I asked him, dude, how, how do you get that blue uniform? He's like, you, should, you could just join Cub Scouts. You should come. So I asked my dad, dad, can, uh, can I join Cub Scouts? He's like, no, we don't have enough money, which was the Trump line. I can't do anything about that. So now not only were they cool uniforms, they were just better than me because I don't have enough money to be like them. So imagine how I felt the day that my, my oldest, Christopher, when he was in kindergarten, he comes home with a little piece of paper in his backpack. And it says, come, be a Cub Scout. I was like, Chris, we get to be Cub Scouts. <laughs> and I grabbed him and we went down. And we went down to register him as a Cub Scout. And there's a bunch of ladies in, in yellow shirts. They look really stupid. But then there was one guy in a uniform. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. This works. And so I sign him up. So then they call for a, a, a parent meeting at some point, and I show up to the parent meeting. And at the parent meeting, it wasn't at the school. We had signed up to do the Cub Scouts at, at, at the school, and instead, the parent meeting was at the Mormon church. And so at the Mormon church, this guy comes up and he says, well, the church, we're taking over the Cub Scouts because you guys aren't, you didn't step up for leadership. And I'm like, whoa, time. What, what do you mean? He's like, well, you've got to have three leaders to have a Cub Scout troop, and nobody, nobody volunteered. You've got to have a treasurer, you've got to have a committee chairman, you've got to have a Cub Master, or you can't, have a, you can't have a Cub Scout troop. Well, I didn't know what a treasurer was, and I don't know what a committee chairman was, and I don't know what a Cub Master was, but Cub Master sounded coolest, so I said, I'll be Cub Master. I'll be Cub Master. And I turned around to my friends, Henry, Henry, you be committee chairman, be committee chairman. He said, okay, I'll be committee chairman. I said, we need a treasurer, somebody, somebody, committee, oh, we need a treasurer. I'll be a treasurer. I said, okay, give me that paperwork. Give that back. I want Mormons raising my kid, yeah. right? <laughs> so I don't know anything about it. I just know I always, I always wanted to do this. I thought it would be a cool thing, and, and this isn't the way it should be. So then I call all the leadership together, and it's the three of us that volunteered and, and all these Mormon women. 
that are all, they're all the den leaders. And I turned to them, I said, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna offend you, but our boys don't wanna grow up to be women. <laughs> and so I think we need to have all male leadership. And to my surprise, they all went, oh, that would be amazing. And they start pouring out their hearts. These women, half of them didn't even have sons. They just had daughters. It was their call from the Mormon church that they had to be in, in, in Cub Scouts, right? You just jacked up church. So I'm like, well, I'm going to replace you. And they're like, that would be great. So then I call a mandatory meeting for all the parents to show up. And they're like, can you do that? I'm like, of course, Cub Master. Of course I can. I can do that. And so I call in all, of the, all the parents show up. And I pretty much tell them the same thing. I said, you know what? Our boys don't want to grow up to be women. Men, you got to step up. We need, I want all male leadership. And I had this really cool little story. I shared the story. It was a really good story. And, and, and I said, besides, nobody's leaving until you guys sign up. <laughs> and so they all came up and they signed up. I had full leadership. Well, now it's moving. I still know, I don't know what I'm doing. But I figure as Cub Scouts, we're going to go camping. So I call up, because like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, hey, we want to go camping. They go, you can't go camping. I said, whoa, wait, Boy Scouts of America, that's what they do. We go camping. They said, you're Cub Scouts, you're too young. And so I, I talked to the guy, and you know, I figure out, okay, I got to play their little game. And so I don't know what, we called it like a family excursion or something. We, we went camping. I just didn't tell him, we just went camping. <laughs> so we went camping. Now here was the deal with the camping. My parents took me camping when I was three or something, but I, I'd never really been camping. Well, I was raised in, in, in L.A. for a good portion of my childhood, and, and, and so I had to go borrow somebody's tent. Oh, we all want to go on a nature hike. So we go on. So I take them on a nature hike down the Bosque, and I'm telling them about all the plants, and I'm showing them how this branch, I said, see how this branch is flexible and strong? And they're like, yeah. I said, the Indians made bows out of these. I'm like, whoa. And I'm going over and I'm pulling up on the bark and I'm going, see how this is stringy bark? And I'm showing it, rub it between your hands. See how that makes rope. And the mountain men would make rope. They trap animals and eat them. And they're like, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> and we're going through. And so I'm going up and down the river telling them all about the plants and the bugs and the everything. And we come back and we get back to the camp after the nature walk. And, and one of the dads comes up to me and he says, he says, you know, I've been an outdoorsman my whole life. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a hunter. I was raised in the wilderness and I didn't know half that stuff. Where did you learn all that stuff? And so I turned to him, I said, I made it up. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, what, they're eight years old, they're gonna debate me? No, I mean, they're not gonna, I made it up. I said, look, they're all ripping branches off the trees, trying to make weapons out of them, it's great. And so he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, that's great. And I said, wait a minute, you're an outdoorsman? I said, what, do you got, what are you leaving me out here to drive for? Teach me how to do this stuff. And what we ended up finding out is that all these men that gathered together, none of us who had ever been, none of us were like lifer, boy scouts or nothing. We were just a bunch of dads just got together. And before we know it, we had 40, 50 boys. And, and it was moving. And it wasn't moving because we knew what we were doing. I never knew what I was doing. I just prayed. And I knew that our sons didn't need to be raised by a cult. And that if we didn't stand up, they would be. That's not right. You see, we've got to disciple, we've got to evangelize. There's nobody else to do it. 
but I'm not going to lie to you. It's work. It's hard. It's a sacrifice. Heroes are not made in our comfort zones. Heroes don't come out of the commonness of life. They don't just, they don't breed on the couch. Heroes are forged in the furnaces of sacrifice. Heroes are shaped and hammered out on the anvil of selflessness. It comes at a cost. It will cost you to be a hero. It will cost you a lot to be a hero. But let me ask a question. What makes us think that being a hero is an option? What makes us think it's just optional? When we die, what are you expecting to hear? Most people, it, it seems like we spend all of our time just trying not to sin, like somehow sin is the measurement of our life. Our life is not measured by sin. It's not like we're going to get up. I mean, are you hoping really? I mean, if that's your mindset, are you hoping you're going to get up there and hear, well done, you got saved and you didn't lust anymore. Well done, you got saved and you weren't angry anymore. Well done. You got saved and you weren't selfish anymore. We can't hope for that. Best we can hope for is, well done, you didn't get caught. Right? Well done, you fooled the guy who was sitting next to you. But we can't fool God. Sin is not the measurement of our life. Praise be unto God. That's what the cross was for. It paid for our sin. We're free. That is not the measurement of our life. The measurement of our life is faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful with what? The gospel. To bear fruit. To be faithful with the gospel. Just in case you missed it on the first one. Well, you can point at my head. I'm loco. I'm nuts. What do you want me to do? There we go. Perfect. Okay. These are wonderful inventions. So, we're supposed to be faithful. What are we faithful with? We're faithful with the gospel. In case you missed it the first round, I'll give you a second round of scriptures. Are you ready? And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel in Mark. In Acts it says, and, they, and, the, and the disciples fled and they continued to preach the gospel. Paul said in Romans, so on my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. It says in Romans 15, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, that I did not build on another man's foundation. In 1 Corinthians 1, it said, I mean in 1 Cor Acts 10, it says, and he ordered us to preach the gospel. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. I'm under com uh, compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Are we getting it? From the beginning, God said, save the lost. 
I don't care about TVs. I don't care about houses. I don't care about careers. I don't care about your clothes. I don't care about the things on this earth. I'm going to destroy this earth. I care about the children and the people that I have made. They are created in my image. They are eternal and they are dying. And I gave you everything to rescue them. Being a hero is not optional. Can you imagine? What, what would we consider? Superman sitting down and he hears with his super hearing. A woman's being raped. And he's like, well, my show's on. Some crime is going down. Some child is being sorely abused. And he's like, man, I'm tired. I just need a veg. He wouldn't be a superhero. He'd be a supervillain. You see, he becomes the worst of all villains. Why? Because he was equipped to be the best of all heroes. So, where does that put us? The people of God, created in his image, saved by the blood of God, filled with the spirit of God, equipped with the word of God, made eternal, forgiven from everything we've ever done, made as if we had never sinned. How were we brought to this place? Someone was heroic, and they evangelized us, and they discipled us. So, do we really think we're allowed to sit down and not do it? That's what we were made for, guys. We were made to be heroes. But somehow, we've been convinced that we can't be a hero. Okay, you guys all sin. You guys all do really bad, nasty, gross, dirty stuff. Yeah. Look at the butchered corpse of God on a bloody cross. That's how bad our sin is. That's how much he loved us. Now look at an empty tomb. That's how much he won. And now he sits upon the throne and he says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Go. Go. He says, by the way, it will cost you everything. Because if you don't sacrifice, if you don't bleed, you're not a hero. Right? If it doesn't cost us anything, then we're just tipping. We're just nice guys. We're not heroes. Heroes cause us to... We already know this. It burns in our bones. But we believed a lie at some point that we weren't heroes. At some point, we thought we were just sinners. No. We were sinners. We're saved by grace. We're now saints. And as saints, Jesus will come back. And I don't want him driving me out because I didn't care enough. 
that I didn't let my heart get broken, that I didn't care about what he cared about, I didn't really believe his word. Our charge is pretty clear. If you think that you're not an evangelist, you're wrong. You're an evangelist. If you think you're not a discipler, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You believed a lie. You're a discipler. And you're supposed to be evangelizing and discipling people because that's really the only thing that matters. So we do. We love our wives and we disciple our wives. They're smarter than us. We disciple them by loving them and protecting them. And if they're not in here, I mean by learning from them. But don't let that get out on the tape. <laughs> we disciple our children by loving them and apologizing to them. And by getting back up and keeping after it. And we disciple everybody else that the Lord lets us meet by telling them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by pouring our, our lives for them. I'd like to end with a story. It's actually the story I told at that Cub Scout meeting. It's been about 20 years, so I don't think I'd wear it out if I told it again. Because I think it really kind of hits it on the nose. It's about a young family, just kind of a nuclear family, a dad and a mom and two kids, a girl and a little boy. The little boy's the youngest. He's about four. His name's Bobby. And they go on a vacation up to a cabin by a lake. So when they get there, the kids are obviously, they've been cooped up in the car. They want to go throw rocks in the water. So there's a little, there's a little, uh, um, pier there going out into the lake and, and so the dad says you can't go on the pier you need to stay away from the water stay up on the shore and you can throw rocks in and that's fine and, and I'll be there pretty soon and so the mom goes into the cabin and she's making it into a home and and uh, and the dad goes into the shed and he's pulling out the boat and he's trying to get it ready so that he can take his family out on the lake uh, and he hears his worst nightmare he hears a splash and then the scream of his daughter he runs out and looks down, and there next to the pier is, um, next to this dock is this ever-widening circle of, of, of waves. And his daughter is standing at the side, pointing at the circle and screaming, and he knows immediately that his son's fallen into the water, and he knows his son can't swim. So fueled with adrenaline, he runs down the bank, and he jumps into where he sees the circles, and he and he dives under the water, but the, it's a murky lake. It's muddy and it's murky. He can't see a thing under the water, so he's forced to grope around along the bottom with his hands, searching frantically for his son. He does it as long as he possibly can, but finally he has to come up for air. And as he gasps for air, he looks around. There's no sign of his son. His daughter is still screaming and crying, and now he sees his wife running down from the cabin with just a look of horror on her face. He takes a huge gulp of air and he jumps back down under the water. And he's frantically searching again, groping and clawing through the mud. He's looking for his son. He bumps into the pier, one of the piers of the dock. And as he bumps into it, he feels something soft. He reaches over and he can feel that his son is clinging to the pier underneath the water. And, and as he grabs his son and his son recognizes that it's his dad's hands, he lets go of the pier and he grabs his father by the, the neck. The two of them come exploding out of the out of the water 
gasping for air. Well, later on, things are calming down. They're in the cabin. They're by the fire. They're toweling off. Mom's making cocoa. And the dad, finally, as he's settling down, turns to his son. And he says, Bobby, what were you doing holding onto that pier under the water? And his little son looks up at him, just innocent and open. And matter-of-factly, he says, I was just waiting for you, Dad. I was just waiting for you. That's the truth. How many are out there? They're lost. They have no clue. They don't have the truth. They're not saved. They're still under the blanket and the burden of their guilt and of lies. They're drowning. They're dying. They're searching for hope in money or, or sex or drugs. They have no clue there's a God who loves them. They're out there. And we're the heroes. We've been called to be the heroes. It's really not optional. I believe this is what ultimately we will answer for. And they're waiting. Are we willing? Now to put a little practical on this. I just happen to know about a mentorship dinner. It's going to be November 16th. It's held down here in Valencia County. And uh, what they're doing is they're taking some kids who are at risk, pretty high risk. These kids are, they've got problems, they've got issues. They're lost kids. And they're asking for people to come in and to be a mentor that night, to just come and eat with them, the dinner's paid for, to sit down with a kid, talk with them, try to connect with them. And the hope is, is that if you connect with this kid, that you would agree to be a mentor. The mentorship is through big brothers and big sisters. So, like, what, what is that? What kind of a commitment is that? How many hours a month? Eight? Four to six. Four to six hours a month that you'd commit to for a while to just pour into this, this kid who's in need. Um, they have identified 25 kids right now for this dinner, or they got a grant for 25 dinners. And uh, right now, I think they've got, like, four people to care. Um, I see absolutely no reason with 500 men in front of me. Uh, I've got a list. I'll have a list, a little sign-up sheet out in, in the lobby. I see no reason why I shouldn't have 25 names on that list. I see no reason why I shouldn't have 500 names on that list. Just saying. But there's no reason that the Christian men of this community should not be the ones who are on that list. Because you see, if it's not going to be the Christian men, what, are we waiting for the Mormon women to go over there and do it for us? If we abdicate our calling, Satan will fill it with evil. That's the truth. So there's a little practical for you. I want to encourage you guys. Let us remember who we are in Christ. Let us remember our call and our commission. And let us not offend our Lord by thinking that it is a suggestion. But let us be faithful. Let us be faithful. Let's pray. Father,
we praise you and we thank you that you are a hero. Jesus, that you died for us, that you saved us. You are amazing. That you've been so generous to us. And Lord, that you've called us to be like you, that you've called us to the heroic. God, we thank you. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for being such cowards. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for being distracted and for believing in a lie up to this point. Lord, we repent. Lord, we ask that you would lead us. God, I pray that you would touch every heart in this room, that our heart would be broken with which, that which breaks your heart. Father, I pray that we would be haunted by the names of those that your heart is weeping for. And God, that we would get out of our selfishness and that we would seek so that you might save the lost. Lord, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your faithfulness even when we've been faithless. We thank you for your promises for they are amazing. We thank you that you've made us men. We thank you that you've saved us. Now we ask that you fill us and we give you all the praise and the glory for it can only belong to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.